Welcome to the Continuous Delivery Podcast. My name is Zarar. I'm Hino. I'm Stacy. And I'm Cheesy. So my four uh, co-hosts today will talk about the four rules of software design by Kent Beck, which read, pass the tests, reveals intention, which means should be easy to understand, should be, there should be no duplication, so DRY, and fewest elements. I want to start off this one with what we mean by fewest elements, because that seems to be the most esoteric one amongst these takes on what we mean by fewest elements. So for me, it means that it does not contain unnecessary code or things like that. So for example, it's not over-architected. If you build an abstraction layer, you build that because you, you need that. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, I think it harkens to a lot of code that I've seen over the years where there's just, you know, 80% of the code, it does what I call feed the beast. In other words, it's there to fulfill some sort of an architectural pattern, but it doesn't actually uh, lean toward uh, adding value for the customer. So now, uh, given that there are needs to fulfill architectural needs, like auditing, logging, security, things like that. But whenever I think about, about, about this specific rule, I think that uh, that it contains no unnecessary element. And so we only add things whenever it's absolutely needed. Yeah, so this is typically a result of uh, of trying to build in functionality that you don't need yet, as, as Jeezy says. Um, and there's another word for that as well, and that is uh, you ain't going to need it. So keep that in mind. Um, if you ain't going to need it yet, uh, there's no reason for you to build it at this point. Just wait until you, uh, yeah, the need uh, presents itself. Well, I would also add that that the 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 bigger the code base is, the harder to to carry us carry us forward. It's almost like like plowing uh, snow in front of us, right? So if you have a larger uh, code base, it's it's much harder to maintain and much harder to 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 keep it in in uh, and adding new features. You know, I say this thing where like every line of code you write is a liability. It's like, it's a bug waiting to happen. It's, it's something that maybe you didn't need, you know, to be able to pare that down is, is nice, uh, but takes practice. And, um, and the other one, I kind of maybe make fun of it a little, you know, we talk about, um, you know, uh, dry code, but, you know, I think of the opposite, you know, wet code, we enjoy typing then, you know, sometimes just the habit of typing out boilerplate code kind of takes over and, and folks emit, um, you know, more than perhaps they, they would have otherwise. It's like the old EJ, EJB 2.1 days where uh, to do anything, you needed eight interfaces. <laughs> you know, that, that was definitely not minimal. And for me, I, I, I kind of go with what, what uh, Hino said is that uh, whenever I read uh, that fourth rule, uh, Yagni comes to mind is that we have a tendency sort of kind of to, to predict the future and say, we may need this in the future, so I'll build it. And, you know, it's probably very compatible with the, with the fewest elements uh, one. It's, it's not just that we think we know the future. It's also, even if we know that in two weeks from now, we're going to need this particular 
abstraction or we were needing this uh, this extra class or whatever that is, um, by implementing it right now, we are actually delaying the feedback that we can get from um, yeah from the piece that we're building uh, without that abstraction layer. So even if it's if it um, puts us back with two hours, it's two hours that it didn't need to put us back, right? So um, so it's beyond um, what we might need and that, that eventually we don't, uh, even the things that we we know we will need in a couple of days from now. I, I really like what um, Sandy Metz says, you know, don't write code that predicts the future, write code that adapts to the future when it arrives. And is this necessarily just about code? Because so far in our conversation, it's all about like, don't, don't, no, don't write excess code. But I think you can apply the same concept to other areas of your stack as well. Yeah, I would I would add that for the, the most classic example is is how Facebook was implemented, right? So they they chose a very very simple stack to to develop it first because they thought, well, if if it's gonna be successful, then then later on we can we can improve it or rewrite it, and that's what they did. Once they realized the, the limitations of PHP, they they they, they went be, then then they went beyond. But that by that point by that point, the product was extremely successful. So I think uh, uh, finding a very very simple and and um, uh, a productive uh, product stack, it's, it can, can go a long way. Just to circle back to what Zorar uh, asked. So uh, when Kent Beck talked about it, he was talking about it in the context of, of software because simple design was talking about uh, software design. But, but I think the, the, the idea applies to many cases, which is that we don't add process. We don't add overhead. We don't add complexity to what we're doing if it's not warranted. So, you know, uh, and, and unfortunately, I'm sure we've all seen way too much of this uh, over the years where we might go into a new client and we look at their methodology and it is incredibly uh, complex with lots and lots of ceremonies or something like SAFE comes to mind, you know, where, where it really is not... I mean, I mean, not where you would want to end up, and in most cases, probably not where you would want to start. I, I do want to correct Chaba because uh, he he said when when they when Facebook ran into PHP's limitations, and as we all know, PHP does not have limitations, only opportunities. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let, let, let's move on to uh, one of these other uh, principles here, which 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 is always uh, you know could be understood in many different ways, and. I'll skip DRY. Maybe that's a different episode on its own, but the reveals intention one, um, right? And I'll give you one example that I was I was uh, pairing with somebody today and they passed an object to a method and that method did some work and returned a value, but in the process also modified the object that was passed in as a parameter. And, and the method was called, uh, it was literally called um, uh, get pull request ID but it also modified the, the object that you passed in. And, you know, in, in my feedback to the developer, I was like, well, you know, this is definitely not revealing intent because maybe you should rename this method to like decorate something or, or, or maybe not even do this thing at all. But if you have to do it, at least, at least call it something which people on first glance when they read it, uh, then can sort of understand it. Do you guys have any, any, any particular, uh, examples or, or, or ideas around this one? If you need to go and look at the implementation of the code to see what it does, then you have an issue. 
that's that's what that really is all about. If you uh, if you need to go and 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 look at the code to see what a, a parameter does or what an internal var- variable does, a local variable does, then you have an issue. Uh, maybe the issue is that your method is too long, that it, that it contains twenty lines of code, and you need to go all the way to the top to see where it's uh, where it's declared. Maybe maybe it's just because the name doesn't doesn't mean anything. Uh, the same thing with your method, the same thing with your classes, the same thing with the packages that it's in, and so forth. But I see that Cheesy uh, is jumping to uh, to add to this. Yeah. So as as developers, we we do spend far more of our time looking at and reading and trying to understand code than we do actually writing code. And so I, when I, whenever I think about this expresses intent, what, what comes to my mind is optimizing for where we spend a lot of our time, which, which is that, that, that looking at code. So code that is complex or difficult to understand, code that I cannot uh, understand at a quick glance is, is code that wastes a lot of my time. Now, uh, I remember back in the very, very early days of XP, you know, early days of Agile, there was this idea that the XP folks said we shouldn't actually put comments in our code. But that actually wasn't the idea there. The idea was that as developers, our code should be so clear and so easy to understand that we don't need comments to help us understand it. And if you feel like you have to put comments in your code to understand what it's doing, then you you failed as a developer. You, you didn't make the code clear enough. Now, I'm not condoning or saying that you should or shouldn't put comments in your code. That's that's for you to decide. But I can tell you that that code, that's very, very easy to understand, where you understand it at a very quick glance. So we're talking about code that in methods or functions that are you know, five, six, seven lines long, you know, code that is that simple is easy to understand. And again, it optimizes for where we spend the majority of our time. Yeah, I just I just wanted to add the, the interesting thing that how everything is connected, because if your code is very, very small, it's most likely to be very, very easily testable. Right. So so so, so now you, you get the it's almost like the benefit of of you getting the, the small code, getting very, very easily testable. And Zarar, to your earlier example, your the the classic, not the classic definition, but the but the smell test of a of a of a method or a function, when you have you shouldn't have more than three parameters in, right? And then and then one possibly out. So 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 some some of those those principles that uh, that right away if you don't break them, most likely that your code is going to be fairly small. It's going to be testable. So, Cheesy, would you want to add something to that? I, I, I have a fun example uh, that, that I can provide. So uh, I was uh, having dinner with Chet Hendrickson one time, and we were talking about the original XP team, uh, which all of their code was written in small talk. And he said that there was this research project going on at University of Michigan where they were doing some of the very early work that ultimately became static code analysis tools, Okay. And so they asked, can we actually use your code base as a test to test this on it? And Chet told me the story. So for those of you who don't know Smalltalk, uh, the, the way Smalltalk works is each statement, you end it with a period, except the very last statement in a, in a, in a method, you don't have the period. And that's kind of what's, what's ultimately returned. And so they, they did this analysis 
where it counted the number of periods in the code, you know, compare that to the number of, of methods, and it came in at less than one. So in other words, their, their average method size was less than two lines. Just thought you would find that interesting because these were the guys who wrote this idea. It's important to think about the time that this will take. You know, sometimes we're really rushing to do things and, you know, the words don't come to mind right away. And so you pick awkward words and you, um, you write things out in a way that maybe doesn't make sense. And if you haven't provided for yourself the space to go back and improve the clarity of it, you, you end up with this, this, you know, rolling bucket of um, technical debt behind you that is very, very hard to come back to because the, the original ideas are now gone. You know, you did them last week or last month or last year. And when it comes time to refactor, you've got to kind of remodel all that in your head just to be able to start again to look for those naming opportunities. Yeah, with that, as a, to, to Zarar's uh, and, and Jesus, sorry, Zarar's example, a counter example is when when your code has multiple purpose, right? Like like one piece of code does does multiple things, and this is such a, such a very very basic principle. If you cannot just use one word, what is the purpose of that method? Again, yet another 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 smell test. So, does this reveal int intent? That that's again the the, the, the almost the, the same conversation, and. And uh, to, to, to your point, Stacey, is, is very, very easy or very, very sedu uh, seductive. If you already have something written, why not just add something to it? Very, like, like just, just, just add something to it. It's going to be just one, one or two lines of code after all, right? And, and how many times do we have to do that before that piece of code becomes an, a, a, just an utter mess? I think uh, one of the challenges to what Stacy talked about and, and what you just alluded to as well, Chaba, is that I find that the whole idea or the concepts around good object-oriented design have been largely lost in our, our world today. I mean, I talk about basic ideas around core object-oriented design and the developers don't know about it. And it's surprising how many developers aren't familiar with so many of the most basic of ideas around uh, uh, around design patterns or around all, so much of the research that, it, that has taken place. So I, I think that, that that is something that we need to continue to promote good object-oriented design if you're working with an object-oriented language. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think object-oriented did kind of programming did kind of lose its way when uh, you know we used to go from like a washing machine washes to generic application context-aware bootstrap impl, right? I mean, somewhere along the way, we kind of went overboard with what object-oriented really even means. I might blame Java for some of that, and definitely PHP for some of that too, Zora. <laughs> I mean, PHP just cannot be blamed for anything because it's, uh, I mean, it's a tool. If you don't know how to use the tool properly, that's a poor craftsman. That's not the language. So Java language came out and assumed that people didn't know how to design. So it started doing things like declaring classes final and all sorts of things like this, which led to a lot of, a lot of problems. So early on, the Apache Foundation came out with with uh, classes to or frameworks to kind of fill in some of the gaps that were missing. 
And they made some really bad design decisions there as well. But I think it was driven by the language, for example, the whole idea of util classes with static methods. And then all of a sudden developers picked it up and now everything's a static mm -hmm. method. You know, so I blame Java for a lot of it. Yeah. I, I do want to do one more round on this on this particular principle. And it has to do with revealing intention um, about the application architecture of something. Because that's kind of where I struggle with the most when I'm looking at a new application is not necessarily what a particular class does, but how does the whole kind of kind of application hang together? If you're writing an application or, or whatever, you're writing a piece of software, how do you make sure that when somebody else looks at it for the first time, the architecture of the application reveals itself in, in the way Beck said in, in rule number two? I mean, the Agile Manifesto says that architecture should be emergent, right? So it should uh, come about uh, as part of the uh, what the team does. But but there's there, there's a lot of complexity there. You know, today's systems are are quite complex, distributed systems, etc. So some of the plumbing we sort of need to know upfront ish. You know, so so it gets a little bit complex from that perspective. But but I will say that I think that rule number four uh, and rule number two here very, very, very much apply Th that architectures need to not be something that stands in the way. They need to be something that's simple and easy. You know, if, if you need to, to go to three days of classes to know how to implement the architecture for the app that you're working on, then, then there, there are some very severe problems there. So the, the 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 role of an architect, if you are an architect that uh, that 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 is designing an architecture that development teams are going to use, I think your goal is to make something that is so easy and simple to use that it's seen as facilitating development rather than uh, becoming a burden to development. So you're there to enable the developers to deliver things more rapidly as opposed to you're there to enforce some some pain on the, on the, on the development staff i i see how sometimes that can go um poorly as well you know i i spend a lot of time in rails and that's a really good example of a, an opinionated framework uses a conversion of control to help pull complexity away from someone just getting started to try and quickly deliver some kind of web app. And, you know, in the beginning, you can, you can do really well with it and you feel like super, super productive. Um, you open the project and all you know about it is it's a Rails project, right? But um, you can, you, if you know that, you can look into controllers, look into models. And and by its own uh, architecture, it began limited the exposure that developers had to the underlying ideas of the system. And so if you want to emerge a better architecture from a project like that, it becomes very difficult. You have to become really knowledgeable about how something like Rails works just to be able to begin to pick it apart and do something that's perhaps more suitable to your use case. And I would add that, that anytime I hear the word architecture, I always get a bit 
bit confused because because what does it actually mean? Where, where, where do we draw the line? Where is the point where architecture starts and then ends, or where is software design is actually so, it, like? And, and because because when I hear work architecture, I usually think of a large organization's very very broad concepts of of how that organization. Uh, it's kind of functions together or, or, or kind of communicates the, their, their applications together, right? This, this almost like this kind of ecosystem. Anything beyond that, I, I wouldn't like to call it architecture and, and no architects should have business in that. What I mean by this enterprise architecture business into that, into that space. Now, I know I'm going to get lots of hate mails from architects, but, but the, 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 uh, and, and the reason to, 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 to choose this point, and I'm going to interpret now the manifesto I would say that software design emerges from the team because I know that they call architecture, but but unfortunately, when we talk about large organizations like large banks, for example, the teams cannot affect or impact that larger piece architecture. That's a given, almost like your, your constraint that you have to operate within. But whatever is within your control, and that's why I like to call it software design rather than architecture, to to have this nomenclature di- differentiation uh, in, in in terms. Well, well, Chaba, I mean, uh, we have to conclude this podcast, but good luck with your TOGAF exam tomorrow. Uh, Hopefully you pass it. Uh, And with that, we will conclude this edition of the Continuous Delivery Podcast.